0: Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read two sections, verse 1 through 5, and then 32 uh, on through. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even into this place. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.' And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, "'He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one.' The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, "'If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself.' And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a dense distance and watched these things. This is God's word for us tonight. Look, y'all, we're trying to figure out this semester why it is that believing matters. And we're doing this by searching through the content of Christian believing rather than getting sort of preoccupied with the act of believing. And tonight we come to what is without question the central preoccupation of Christian believing. And that is the death of Christianity's leader, Jesus. In other words, there is no other event that occupies Christians' imaginations. Imaginations. Faith, maybe, we might say. Than the week of Jesus' death. Consider this for just a second. Nine of the book of Matthew's 28 chapters are about the week of Jesus' death. Six of Mark's 16... Uh, six of Luke's 24, and nine of John's 21. Uh, Jesus died when he was 23, which means that there were somewhere around 1,700 weeks of his life. Uh, His biographers, though, spend usually about a third of their time on one of those weeks. (laughs) What other biography, think about this, what other biography have you ever read or even heard of where there's this kind of lopsided attention that's paid to the subjects humiliating, excruciating, and apparently mission failing end. What other biography have you ever heard like that? And yet, Christians unblushingly talk about this event as if it is the linchpin of Christian believing. Uh, My new favorite uh, commentator is... a. um, an Episcopalian guy who's an uh, Anglican guy living in uh, Europe at this time, by the name of Michael Wilcock, he says this. Listen to this quote. This is great. He says, Let no reader imagine that he has begun to understand the Christ of the gospel unless the cross has come to dominate his horizon also. Only when he has sought it and reached it and let it fill his vision as it filled the vision of the Lord and his evangelists Can he say that he is beginning to see what Christian faith is all about? Hmm. Look, for a moment, I simply want you to think about this fact. That's weird. (laughs) I mean, why would the gospel writers hurry, comparatively speaking, through three years of Jesus' life narrative and then suddenly slow the pace of the story down to a crawl? And suddenly, sort of, as Jesus goes through these experiences. And why would generations of Christians celebrate that week in the most dense portion of the Apostles' Creed? By saying, generation after generation, suffering under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. Look, in order to understand what I would consider to be an historical anomaly, a weirdness of of history... I want you to consider three things. The reality of Jesus' death, the significance of Jesus' death, and then finally, the application of Jesus' death. Okay? The reality, the significance, and the application, first of all. The reality of his death. Look, there are only, it's interestingly enough, two people whose name gets mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The first one is Mary as being the mother of Jesus. The second one is this guy, Pontius Pilate. Okay? Okay? Um, And when you're first reading through the Bible, you know, Pilate is sort of an unlikely character uh, to be included in a creed that would be repeated for the next, you know, thousands of years. Because in many ways, he's kind of an unimportant character in Jesus's story here as he goes through it. Pilate comes across as a uh, wishy-washy, conscience-stricken, almost milquetoast leadership who just is only kind of mildly bothered by the whole affair. So why, why, would Christians somehow put his name in this creed that tries to describe what Christians believe? Well, I simply want to answer that by the fact that Christianity wants to make it clear that the story that it's telling is rooted in real history. This is a huge issue that for a lot of people in college, they stop buying into. Pilate, we believe, was the governor of a real province during a real period of actual history. And for a lot of people, they look and say, well, okay, what difference could that possibly make in this story? Well, look, think about this. In order to embrace any world religion, typically means to embrace the teachings of that particular system. In other words, it's the path of that religion, the insights, the wisdom, the, uh, the five pillars, if you will, whatever. But when it's all said and done, the real essence of the religion is not necessarily what their leaders did, but rather what their leaders said. And so in order to be a part of that particular religious expression, you look not necessarily at their actions, but at their teachings. Now look, the upshot of all of this is simply this, that in every other religious system, salvation comes on the basis of how you live. It's how you live that's important. And what's really crucial about the teachings of those people, about the other founders though, is their teachings. The Buddha shows you a path. Allah lays down His will. In other words, it's how you live that's important. But the Christian faith, in direct distinction to that, is not some sort of warm embrace of a new moral code. You know uh, You know, I've decided that I'm going to live like a Christian now, we oftentimes say. Look, I simply want to pitch at you that Christianity, faith, is believing that something happened, like actually happened, actually incredibly important things, cosmically significant things happened. And the Bible is not a collection of inspiring stories for living. What we believe is it is the account of real space and time events that if they're true, means something very profound. And that is that God has broken into human history. And he's made himself known. Now look, what that means is, is that Christianity is the only religion that has the capacity to be a religion that's based upon grace and not a religion that's based upon performance. My guess is this is fairly good news for some of you (laughs) who have uh, grown to despair if you think that your salvation is eventually up to you. So the first point that the creed wants to get in front of you is, is guess what? We're not talking about ideas in abstraction. We're talking about something that happened under Pontius Pilate, a real historical figure that lived during a real time. These are true stories. First of all, the reality of Jesus' death. Secondly, the significance of Jesus' death. But that kind of begs a question, doesn't it? Okay, less. So what if some, you know, poor Jewish prophet was executed 2000 years ago? How could how could that sort of historical event be cosmically significant if significant at all? And at this point there's a lot of people that really misunderstand what Christians teach about this. And I want I want to set the record straight on this one especially. I would submit to you that it is decidedly not the point of the message of the cross to sort of draw pity out of you. Does that make sense? Or, or, you know, to sort of make you look and see what Jesus did as if we were to be like, oh, oh, that's, that's so horrible. And by drawing pity up out of you when you consider his sufferings, that you'll be like, oh. Boy, if he could do that, I guess I just need to follow him. Look, y'all, in many ways, I remember when I was a kid listening to Christians go into horrific detail about the physical sufferings of Jesus and exactly what it was that he went through on the cross. But look, y'all, though horrific that they were, the physical sufferings of Jesus were not the point As a matter of fact, it'll sort of mess you up at this point when you realize that there were followers of Jesus after his death who quite honestly died uh, for the faith in more violent ways than Jesus. In other words, they were subjected to more gruesome deaths than Jesus was. So it is not the point of the crucifixion to sort of horrify you with gruesome detail. In many ways, yeah, I'm going to say this. I'm going to get in trouble for it. In many ways, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, completely missed the point on this issue. So many people, at being so struck by what they saw in the blood and the gore of that movie, came away thinking that that was the point. It's not. (laughs) The physical sufferings were not the significance. I want to suggest to you tonight that the significance of Jesus' death is highlighted for us in the text in two ways in this gospel account. In other words, there were two things that the gospel writer reports upon that were happening while Jesus is dying that powerfully illustrate what's going on. You know what those two things were? The darkness and the split veil. And in the midst of that, connected to those two events are two amazing statements that Jesus makes in order to explain what the darkness and the split veil meant. You might have gone right past this because this story is so familiar, but look at it again. First of all, what happens? While Jesus is up on the cross, a deep darkness shrouds the last few hours of Jesus' dying. Now, look, darkness in the Bible is actually a fairly common theme. Whenever darkness shows up in the Bible, you can know that something's going on. Typically, it means chaos, it means confusion, uh, it signifies disorder. Uh, mayhem of some kind. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, we find out that in the pre-created order, what happened? There was darkness over the face of that sort of primordial slime that was there. And from then on, whenever darkness fell, it was typically a sign that God was coming in judgment. Uh, Later on, it would be one of the ten plagues that were visited upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians later on in Exodus. Um... And this is not too far from us. We kind of have some sense that darkness kind of means this. I hear people saying all the time that when they go through deep, sort of hard periods of life, they'll say, you know, honestly, suddenly everything just went dark. Uh, Maybe when you go to movies that are sort of, uh, uh, when they sort of disturb you. Have you ever seen a movie that you were just kind of like, ooh? You describe it oftentimes as being dark. In other words, darkness still means this for us. But look, what happens when that outside darkness actually becomes an inside darkness? Follow me for a second. What happens when the darkness that's around us, that's wrapping around us, actually all of a sudden gets inside, inside our personality? You know, darkness can show up uh, in a logical sense with the endless sort of spin cycles of logic where we're trying to figure life out. Darkness can show up as an emotional sense in terms of uh, depression. Darkness can also come in your your volitional capacity, where all of a sudden you start to make really bad choices. Look, y'all, the point is this. Jesus comes and says, men love the darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Look, I want to pitch at you that there's probably few uh, few among us tonight who can't appreciate this sense that there oftentimes is this creeping, pervasive darkness that can kind of get inside, where all of a sudden we just can't see through what's going on. Now here's my question to you. Where does that come from? And why is that such a universal experience? The Bible has an answer to that question, but it may not be one that you like. Christians relate to this event of darkness that Jesus went through at Jesus' death as a way of saying something that they fundamentally believe about the universe around them. And that is that human beings, this is the point, big big point here, (laughs) that human beings, even oftentimes without even being fully aware of it, are waging a war against an undefeatable enemy, in God. This is Christian's take upon this, right? That we were not born neutral. That we were bent from the very beginning of having our way over and against God's way. And God is supremely offended by the fact. And he is determined to, to, to push down the rebellion And to bring about some kind of demanding of payment for the wrongs that are done against his sovereignty. I told you you weren't going to like it. But I simply want to pitch at you that this is a Christian explanation for what's going on with you. That our psychological, our emotional, our relational, our social struggles in life can be traced back to what the Bible calls sin. And that's why Luke includes Jesus saying to his executors, Father, forgive them because they don't know. (laughs) They don't know what it is that they're doing. They don't see the full realization. They're not even necessarily aware of why things around them have grown so dark, both on the outside and on the inside. This, by the way, in in answer to a lot of your questions, many of you have come up and asked me this question up until this time, is the answer to the question, what does it mean when it says he descended into hell? Um, I I do not think this means, I am from a tradition uh, that does not believe descended into hell means that Jesus actually went into the place of Hades for three days after he died. I do not think that that's what Peter is talking about in his epistle when he says that Jesus went and preached uh, uh, salvation to the souls uh, imprisoned. Uh, Rather, what we know where Jesus was. We know where Jesus was after he died on the cross. He was in paradise with the thief on the cross because he said that. I tell you the truth, you will be, what, with me this day in paradise. So we know that Jesus didn't descend into hell there. I want to submit to you that Jesus entered hell when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. That's the darkness. Look, y'all, when the darkness gets inside, we look at it as if it's forsakenness. And Jesus on the cross is, in a sense, bearing that forsakenness. He is absorbing the darkness into himself in such a profound and tangible way that God himself sinks the entire countryside in an inky blackness because no human eye is actually going to watch what goes on between him and his son in that place. Darkness, that's the first thing that hints at the significance of Jesus' death, but there's something else, something equally enigmatic there in verse 45. Because right before Jesus dies, the veil in the temple splits. Now, you may be saying to yourself, what is that? Well, look, these ancient Jewish people in the back of their sort of great uh, hall of the temple put up a giant curtain, a literal veil, as it were, that you couldn't see through, that separated the back room from the sort of front room. And behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant, This little piece of furniture that was the symbol of God's presence among his people. And what that little box stood for, we've actually been talking about this in freshman Bible study. But what that little box stood for was the very presence of God. And what that box meant was that you are in desperate need of the presence of God. Everything that God is doing in the universe is trying to say to his people, you were created to live in connection with me. So that to be cosmically in means to live in my presence, but there's a problem. Though that is what you were created to know and experience, the presence of God represented to us in this little box, about yay big and about yay tall, you can't have it. That's the significance of the veil. In other words, you were built to know God's presence. It's, what you, it's the only way in which you're going to function properly. But guess what? You can't have it. There was always a veil for thousands of years of Jewish history. There was a separation. Only the high priest could go back into that place one time a year to atone for the sins of the people. So Jesus looks over at the thief next to him, and in response to his request to be remembered, says, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, what Jesus says is, the significance of Jesus' death is that somehow his dying secures our access to God that was impossible prior to Jesus dying. Now you should be asking yourself this question. Well, how did that happen? How? Consider one point in this. The great question of the New Testament is simply how can you have a God who is holy on the one hand and in relationship with a people who are decidedly not. That's the question of the Bible. It dominates every single theme. To put it in terms of this particular scene that we're looking at, how do you have darkness and access at the same time? Look, y'all, this is the spotlight on what Jesus dying means in the New Testament. Here it is. You ready? (laughs) On the cross, Jesus is substituting. He's taking his people's place. And for that reason, his death rings throughout the halls of Christian praise for at least two millennia after that, (laughs) because he took his people's place. Look, y'all, Jesus' death was not an example of how we ought to live. Would you look at that, Jesus? There he is up on the cross. If we would just love each other that way, (laughs) that's not the point. It's a good example, but that's not the point. Jesus is not giving us some example of how it is that the upper class oppresses the poor. See there? He was downtrodden by the upper class as a poor person. That's not what it means. It was a substitutionary sacrifice that brings his people to God. Look, y'all, there's no other reason why generation after generation Christians (laughs) would hang ancient forms of brutal execution around their necks as ornaments. Anybody wearing a cross tonight? (laughs) Anybody wearing an electric chair around their neck tonight? Look, y'all, the significance of Jesus' death is that he stood in my place. This summer when I was writing these, um, uh, when I was putting these sermons together, uh, I happened to to watch, uh, why is it that that Pixar and Disney have, have the best sermon illustrations? How is that possible, Right? I got a chance to watch Wally all over again. If you don't like Wally, you don't have a soul. <laughs> Here's Wally, right? Wally ends up saving the planet. <laughs> he saves the human race. And you want to know how he saves the human race? Because there in the very last scene, there he is with his little bitty arms kind of setting up and his little big bug eyes sort of trying to hold it up so that they can get the plant back inside the computer just in time so the people of earth can make it back. In other words, at that very moment, the reason why we sort of feel this little tug on our heartstrings is because I think that intuitively we all kind of wish that was true. You know, the best thing about Wally is he didn't save the universe because he set out to be like, dun-da-da-da. Da, da. He's a little too goofy for that, isn't he? You want to know why he saved the universe? Because he was in love. Because when he looked into Eva's eyes, he knew he just had to get that. And there's a reason why all of a sudden that sends little echoes, little reverberations through our heart where we think to ourselves, whew. Because intuitively, in the very fabric of the universe, is this information inside us that says, I need a substitute. And Christians have been blown away ever since by saying, guess what? The story of Wally is true. It's true. There really is one who, there really is one who gave himself for you for no other reason than the fact that he was in love. Hmm. thirdly and finally and I'll finish with this the application okay so what what in the world do you do with this (laughs) well there's a couple things you do the first thing is this you must first of all realize that Christianity has a dark side Um, Christianity is a bloody religion I have to say this I have to say this because we do not Christianity and I I, I, your generation I think is going to understand this more than most Christianity is not a um An antiseptic, safe religion in the realm of ideas. It is earthy and bloody and physical. Anybody remember the first time they ever watched The Godfather? The first time you watch The Godfather is the first time that you're kind of like, "Ooh." there's something about the violets in the movie The Godfather that can be so unnerving and so disturbing the first time that you see it that something kind of gets in you. But it's funny how compelling it was for people. When you watch The Godfather for the first time, you're just kind of like, I don't understand, but it moved in a way in which things rarely do. Because you want to know why? It gets in connection with the ugliness of life. I think Christianity is the exact same way. Look, here's the first example of that. What is it that the people do with Jesus' death? You can see it in the reaction that people had. The first thing that they do is they leave, what did the passage say? Beating their breasts. Now that's weird. Why would you do that? Well, that actually comes from the ancient Hebrew form that the Bible calls contrition. Contrition was an ancient form of execution. Very bizarre where you would place a large, massive rock on the chest of the victim so that slowly it would crush the life out of the victim to where they could, they could exhale just fine, but they couldn't get, sort of get any breath back out because the weight was so heavy. These people beat their breasts because they understood that there was a heaviness on their heart, that the darkness they saw was actually inside And so they walked away humbling themselves. This is the first way to react to the cross. The only way to approach the cross is humbly in repenting. In other words, the first way to know what the cross means is to begin to humble yourself and begin to say that I'm not going to limit anymore Jesus' rights over me. He has full extent. He can speak to my life any place at any time. So they beat their breasts in contrition. That's where you begin. You want to know what the cross is about? It's time to put aside your your pride and admit that the darkness really has crept inside. But secondly, Jesus not only gave his followers um, a, a way of dealing with that darkness, but he gave his followers a unique way of dealing with their own suffering or what we might call the problem of evil. Not only their own, but also the world around them. And I want to submit to you that it's actually a unique solution that no other world religion comes to. This is Michael Wilcock again. This is great. He says, The account which Luke gives to us of the last hours of Jesus' earthly life brings a much-needed assurance. The most diabolical of all the schemes of Satan— was not only countered at every point by a superior plan of God's devising, but it was actually woven into that plan and made to serve its ends. Now listen to this. And if that was what God could do with the master plot of hell, then there can be no evil which he cannot in the end turn to blessing. (sighs) Some of you need to hear this. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus' death the worst thing that ever happened in human history, or was it the best thing that ever happened in human history? It's got to be both. But don't you see how weird that is? I mean, the Son of God dies? That's bad. (laughs) But the Son of God dies in your place to give you access to the presence of God? That's the best thing that could ever happen. And because that happened on the cross, you realize what that means. It means that the Bible has a way of transforming your suffering. I was talking with a friend of mine a number of years ago who had been the victim of, of, of the kind of sexual abuse that I don't, I honestly don't want to get into here with you. Um, There's a lot of darkness in this person's past, and yet somewhere along the way, they'd been introduced to the message of the cross, and they began to see things in a very different way in the face of that abuse. And at one point during the conversations that we had, she looked over at me and she said, You know, what I realize that I'm learning is that before I met Jesus, that event had a meaning. It meant that I was dirty. That event meant that I was soiled, that I was ruined. But now all of a sudden I'm realizing that that's not what, that because the cross is what it is, that that event now means that I live in a broken world that Jesus is trying to fix by his death. And he wants me to be an agent to try to help fix it. Wow. Look, y'all. Jesus comes in to help you deal with where you're hurting, not by denying your hurt, like it's not there, it's not there, it's not there, nor by making you feel guilty for it. It's my fault. Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 I'm going to take the exact same pain. The thing that you're looking at right now and thinking, I don't think I could ever get through that. And he's going to say, I'm going to take that very thing and I'm going to turn it and I'm going to change the perspective that you have on it and I'm going to turn it into something that God's going to use, that I'm going to use and it's actually going to fix the entire universe. I believe in Jesus, (laughs) crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, buried, descended into hell. This is what Christians say they believe. Consider it as an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you grant to us the ability to see something that quite honestly is bizarre to most people? What would the world say if they could see us having conversations like this? And yet we ask that you would give us the grace to transform our eyes into something that maybe has been too familiar into something that could actually heal the darkness that's on the inside. Lord Jesus, there are too many faces in this room for there not to be stories here that even we're afraid to tell ourselves. But we look to your cross, the very center of what it means for us to believe, and we cling to it, and we long for for you to do in us what you did on the cross, to not only humble us, but also transform our suffering into victory. Lord Jesus, if you could do that, we would all stand amazed, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.